Hello, and welcome to AgTech So What, brought to you by the AgVenta Group. I'm Sarah Nolette. Increasingly, meat, especially red meat, is being positioned as the bad guy when it comes to climate change, the environment, and health. And there are some loud voices in this debate on both sides. If a sustainable food system is the end goal, how helpful is this debate? And are we focusing on the right things? We have these incredibly passionate, extreme views about finding alternative protein options and largely you know, the way that they promote or push their case is to denigrate the red meat sector. And a bigger issue is how do we actually feed the world? That's Jason Strong, the Managing Director of Meat and Livestock Australia. The MLA is a big industry player. It's a producer-owned company that spends about $270 million a year on marketing, market access, and research and development for Aussie cattle, lamb, and goat producers. While most Australians will know the MLA for its annual summer lamb campaign featuring the larger-than-life former footballer Sam Kekovic, its messaging has had to become a lot more sophisticated recently as communications technologies advance and food issues, and meat in particular, are becoming increasingly susceptible to emotional debates and even misinformation. For example, there's a battle raging over food labeling, what can and cannot be called meat. Today, we're hearing from the red meat industry, what they're doing to become carbon neutral and why, and efforts to continue to maintain their social license. Let's meet Jason, who has pretty much always been involved in the meat industry. I can't remember not being in it. As far back as I can remember, growing up on a farm at Gunnedah and then going to an ag boarding school in in Tamworth at at Farrah, always wanting to be a cattle producer, always wanting to be a farmer always wanted to be involved in the industry. So it started you know, way back. And I think this you know, commitment to being a, a, a cattle farmer has been the, you know, the underlying theme, but obviously I'm off on a bit of a, a tangent, although I've, I've, you know, I have been down that track and still do some of that. The big shift for me, though, was I think at an early age, learning, learning from others and, and being, I think, being very willing and excited about what others were prepared to share and yeah, most of my learning and significant learning has come from other people in the industry and those that I've been very fortunate to to spend time with. And so very early on, I did a lot of livestock judging and turns out I was, I was pretty good at it as a as a young guy and I won a trip to the US. And and that was the, the, the real critical tipping point for me. So I was part of the Angus Youth Program. They used to have a, a national Angus show and sale at, at Albury-Wodonga. And I won the, the judging competition there, which which got me a trip to the University of Illinois for a semester. And that was the real defining moment in in my career for a, for a number of things around travel, around confidence, around seeing reward for effort, because that was the second time I'd been in the national final. I'd, I came second the year before, you know, so you sort of learn about picking yourself up and, and responding again. But probably more important, I learned and met some of the most critical and defining things and people in my career in that four-month period. So some of my very best friends, but also an educator called Dr. Tom Carr, who was the meat science professor at the University of Illinois. He was very, very helpful and and supportive of of me wanting to learn. And that's when I started to learn about the meat grading system and and got a bit more excited about what else might be able to be done in the industry and and came back to Australia and, and then got back on a bit of a different path where I came back very excited about being a meat grader, 
thinking that that was going to be my new career path to discover we didn't have a meat grading system, which is very career limiting if the thing you've decided to do doesn't actually exist. <laughs> but back on this theme of you know the important people, I called my old ag teacher, a guy called Greg Chapel, who's a very well-known Angus breeder at Glen Ennis now, and uh, said, chaps, you know, I've decided what I want to do. I want to be a meat grader. And he said, well, unfortunately, we don't have a meat grading system. I was like, well, let's set one up. And that's what actually got me started then on the path. And you know, collectively, we we started working on setting up the MSA program, which is you know, Meat Standards Australia as we know it today. I'm sure you know where many of the skeletons in red meat are buried, but also some of the great stories around how Australian red meat has evolved to become a kind of global powerhouse in the space. So one of the things I'm given, you've had lots of different kinds of experience in the industry and obviously where you sit at MLA, you're seeing a lot of the shifts in how red meat is being viewed globally and from inside and outside of Australia, to your point about travel, what are some of the big things that strike you about how the kind of perception of red meat has been changing over your career in the industry? It's really interesting how we've seen it change. And it's not just, I think, the perception of red meat globally, but it's also, I think, how the Australian industry has responded to that. And and some of it's been in parallel. Some of it's been as a result of the changes, but some of it's been a path that Australia's been on anyway. And in Australia, you know, we're seeing a very bias and one extreme view about red meat and I think it comes back to our position as a country about how privileged we are and and how fantastic we have it here and we have a a massive amount of choice and discussions about alternative protein sources and what else you might be able to do as far as food choice goes that's a privilege that the majority of the world actually doesn't have we're seeing more interest in other protein sources but more importantly I think we're seeing this significant increase in demand for protein. So as the world becomes more affluent and the protein demand increases, which is one of the first things that happens when people become more affluent is they they you know, go to more secure protein sources and particularly red meat. So we're seeing an increase in demand for protein across the board and we're seeing an increase in demand for red meat proteins as well. But we're also seeing in the last you know, 10 or 15 years an increase in the availability of information and communication and there's a lot less filters on what information comes out and people are able to to take very strong, largely uninformed or poorly informed or informed with bias positions on things. And, And so I think we're caught up in all of that. So we shouldn't be naive about the challenge. We shouldn't be naive about the opponents to red meat. But also we, on the other hand, we should be very positive and excited about the opportunity for the growth in protein demand. It's really interesting what you're saying about kind of where, like who has a voice nowadays. It used to be that there were kind of big trusted institutions and what they said kind of goes. And, you know, the famous campaigns around things like, you know, got milk in the US and, and these were trusted institutions that people listened to. And that was what was sound nutritionally, environmentally, et cetera. And now there's this mass ability to communicate whoever you are on the internet and to have a Twitter handle or whatever, and get your views out there and go viral and, and have a perspective. How are you seeing that influence the red meat industry? And in, in, I guess, imagine in both positive and negative ways. I think, sadly, it's probably more negative than anything else because as an industry globally where we're not managing that very well and that there's a bunch of us trying hard to do that, but we're not projecting our voice and our message outward well enough yet. We're having a lot of very 
robust discussions with ourselves. And, you know, the most common thing I think that gets asked in the meat industry is what's somebody else that I know doing about this rather than what can I actually do about it? If we could just project ourselves outwards, I think we'd see a material a material change. But more broadly, I think what we're seeing though is some of it creates you know fear and concern and unnecessary worry for people when you know, things are purported to be a lot bigger issue or a lot more of an issue than what they necessarily might be. And, and climate change is is one you know, where I believe we all should be very conscious of you know, how we manage our impact on the environment and how we invest in improving the environment going forward. But I'm not a subscriber to the world ending. And sadly, that that is a lot of where this argument comes from. And we see that so often, which is terrible because what it does then is just polarise people. So we end up with the supporters of that saying, oh, no, the world's going to end. And then the opponent saying, oh, no, nothing's actually going to happen. You shouldn't listen to any of it. And neither of these people are right. You know, we've got to find this sensible middle ground. And sadly, what happens, I think, with the the availability and speed of communication and information these days is the the loudest extreme voices seem to be the ones that are heard and they manage to find each other and fight. And the majority of us that sit in the middle of that, we've got a responsibility to to try and find the solution and get our way forward before you know, the loonies on either extreme wreck the joint for us. Of course, climate change is having an impact on the environment and society, and agriculture has a significant carbon footprint. But ag can also be part of the solution. The Australian red meat industry is now moving towards a target of being carbon neutral by 2030. This commitment, announced in 2017, is a proactive stance to address emissions, largely by investing in technologies from genetics to husbandry, but not promoting regulation. And it was really ambitious at the time and got a whole bunch of of commentary, but it was incredibly insightful now in hindsight where it was a position that was taken from, we have evidence which says there's challenges around the broader environmental future. And we know that agriculture is highly reliant on, on the environment and we know that there are components of the red meat sector which contributes to that. And here's a path for us to be able to get in front of that. So let's actually set up the plan to get there. Now, as it turns out, incredibly proactive and insightful, but also a world-leading position for an industry to be positive and proactive about that. Sadly, you know, so much of the discussion in the the vein of this wild communication gets right off track from that. And yeah, how how would you say meat meat has been positioned? And and it sounds like you don't necessarily think that's fair. I, I really don't think it's fair. No, I think I think meat and particularly cattle uh, are a real scapegoat for people becoming more aware of a potential impact on the environment. And so we know that the red meat sector has an impact on the environment. And and there's people in our sector that will say, no, it doesn't. We have no impact. You know. But we do, right? So all of us have an impact on the environment. You, know, you get up and put your pants on, you've had an impact on the environment. But it's nothing like what gets reported so often. So we know, for example, the red meat sector contributes about 10% of greenhouse gas emissions. And I think what often happens is you know, when we think about something that can be done, and I think the climate discussion is a good example where it's very easy for people to agree that something should be done. It's much harder for them to agree 
that they specifically should do something. And the poor old cow is one of the, the best examples. So everybody knows what a cow is. Very few people in the total world population actually own one. So it's very easy for them to say, oh, I recognise what a cow is. But if something's changed about the cows, that's probably not going to necessarily impact me at a personal level. So let's actually use the cows as a way to make a solution. Meanwhile, those of us that are up to our neck in the cow industry are being more proactive than anybody else about trying to find a solution. So, I, I, so yes, I think it's incredibly unfair the way it's being positioned, particularly given how proactive the industry is in a whole range of areas and how much progress has been made now, since 2005 in Australia. You know, we've halved the impact of the, the red meat sector on the global, on the national greenhouse gas emissions inventory. What are some of the ways that's happened and some of the ways that that might continue to keep happening? One of the pushbacks I hear is, well, some of that is from just destocking and a lot of that stock will come back in years of drought and things like that. So what, what's your sense of how that, what's been successful and what is the future hold in terms of areas for potential to keep reducing that impact? I think what you just raised there, Sarah, is an incredibly important part of this discussion and, and what we see so often and let's use other analogies it's a bit like when you've got sales staff and you say why haven't you hit, hit your numbers let's oh, it's phasing you know it's these one line throwaways that try and get us in front of or get us past something which we're not necessarily comfortable with ourselves there's a small component of truth in so many of those things that get said but the reason why the bigger reason why the reduction in contributions to the inventory have happened since 2005 is around land clearing management so land clearing hasn't stopped, but it's being managed better. So we've actually, we've had a greening of you know, the cattle production areas since 2005 compared to, to prior to that. And that creates some issues. We've got to be able to manage regrowth. We've got to be able to manage product productivity. And it's also increasing in productivity. So shorter turnoff time, so more kilos produced in a shorter period of time. And some of it is, is around the, the herd inventory. But it's a whole combination of things which have contributed to that. And most importantly, there's no point having a carbon neutral goal if we aren't still productive and profitable and we have intergenerational sustainability because we've got to feed the world. And regardless of what anybody might think, whether you're a vegan or a veggie or you're an extreme meat eater, we've got to have a, a way to have balanced diets. We've got to have a way to to feed the world, and th and there is there is actually no known solution now to you know, replacing the protein that's provided by the by the red meat sector, and as well as that sector being custodians of such a large chunk of the of the land. And you know, if you don't actually manage it properly and well, and and livestock's one of the best ways to do that, then that's going to create bigger problems as well. So, you now the cows are a pretty important part of the future. It strikes me, even in how you talked about climate change before, that there's still a lot of sensitivities around this. And my, I guess, sense is that producers worry about something like a carbon neutral target as, oh, there's going to be regulations imposed on me. I'm going to be told what I can and can't do. And people who don't understand farming are going to threaten my profitability, intergenerational sustainability, et cetera. What's your response? Is this a threat and something like a carbon neutral target or and or an opportunity? So firstly, I think it's absolutely an opportunity, but I absolutely understand those concerns as well. And those concerns are very real if 
we don't get in front of it ourselves. And if we aren't a strong voice and if we aren't proactive about demonstrating that that we've got this, that we actually have a solution for productivity and profitability, for intergenerational sustainability, for leaving the environment a better place, being part of the climate solution, then we absolutely run the risk of of things being imposed on us, which may not necessarily make sense or may not necessarily be scientifically based, but that's not what will be driving them. It will be people wanting to feel better about themselves and respond to other concerns. And one of our biggest problems from a MLA point of view and a broader industry point of view is the proactive steps that we're making being connected to the potential for regulation. And, and the two things are very, very different. And we, we've got to keep, absolutely keep banging away at, at our communication to make sure that we're very, very clear that our, our focus is on finding you know, this three-pronged solution where we're driving, we're being driven by increase in, productive and, in productivity and production and profitability. And so I think this proactive piece is absolutely our, our best defence. And even even over this period, I mean, there are obviously naysayers. There are big challenges that need to be overcome for all of agriculture, including red meat. One of the challenges in particular for red meat, as you've highlighted, is sort of the the loud voices around livestock as a culprit in, in the climate conversation. Yet the prices of red meat have skyrocketed over at least the recent times. You know, what, what does that say to you about the anti-red meat sentiment? I think it's a loud minority, but it's also a big, a big threat. And you know a lot of the statements that get made about the the red meat industry and about a whole bunch of other things are frankly just made up, uh, and they're delivered to support a self-interested or biased view of the world. Yet they get an incredible amount of space or traction, whatever. What's an example? That, like, is there a particular one that comes to mind? The the one that keeps that keeps popping up is is about sustainability and about sustainable diets. The best thing you can do for a sustainable diet is actually eat less red meat, which is absolute rubbish. You know, like it's actually, there's actually nothing to support that. Like there's there's no peer reviewed scientific based evidence that says that is actually a solution around diets. It's but we have the same issue around health. So there's a, a there's a lot of association studies, which people then talk about as scientific studies but there's very few if any peer-reviewed scientific studies that talk about the talk about negative impacts of of red meat particularly beef so but but it gets maligned because it suits an argument where we'd like to support an alternative approach to a diet so the best way that we can do that is by trashing this one over here and we'll actually say whatever it takes to trash this one over here. Hmm. I, I hear the nutrition argument. That one feels muddier because correlation and causation, you know, there, there's been studies recently around red meat causing cancer. But to your point, if you're eating red meat, are you also eating cheeseburgers and Coca-Colas and having a milkshake? You know, I, I, and we, we understand so little about the human body. So I think 
to me, there's, there's weak signals, but we don't have an answer there. And anyone that says, if you just eat this, or if you just don't eat this, you know, that's not how human bodies work on the environmental side though. I mean, we talked before about 10% of Australia's national greenhouse gas footprint comes from red meat. That one feels a little harder to say that reducing red meat consumption is in like, won't have any impact given that data. So how do you think about the evidence there versus some of those conversations? Well, I think a couple of things that are important about that is that the the information attached to the alternative isn't also then included. So if you go to something like our world in data, which is you know, one of those consolidating you know, data points, and they have total animal agriculture impact on the environment at less than 10%. So it's a, whether it's 8%, 10%, 12%, you know, it's, but it's around those numbers. It's certainly not 20 or 40 or 80, which gets run out so many times. But in that same set of information, the total greenhouse gas emissions from cropping is actually greater than animal agriculture. You take in cropping, you take deforestation associated with cropping and crop burning, and it's actually greater than the impact of animal agriculture. So, so yes, we know that the red meat sector has a contribution to the inventory, but if we then start looking at what does the alternate contribute as well, like, well, hold on, if we're going to replace these calories with calories that come from this, which we know is going to take a significant increase in the production, it's going to actually mean land use that hasn't been previously used for cropping. And so far, evidence says that it's not appropriate for cropping. So you, you try and do a one-for-one swap, and we have no concept of what the increased impacts concern. The truth is, it's really complex Jason's right in that it's not a one-for-one. Land is cleared for both meat production and cropping, but it takes more land for meat to be produced than it does peas or tofu. Studies show that livestock takes up to nearly 80% of global agricultural land, but produces less than 20% of the world's supply of calories. And yet, in Australia in particular, there's a lot of land that can't really be used for cropping, but is suitable for grazing. Undeniably, what we eat and how we farm are incredibly important when it comes to land use. How do we actually find a holistic solution to being able to feed the world, being able to run our businesses on a intergenerational sustainable basis and being able to leave the environment in better shape? But instead, we have these incredibly passionate, extreme views about finding alternative protein options and largely the way that they promote or push their case is to denigrate the red meat sector. And a bigger issue is how do we actually feed the world? So it's very hard to not get past self-interest is actually driving these discussions. And, and I think the most concerning bit is that, that that doesn't get called out enough. Yeah, it strikes me that that's true on both sides. Like you see farmers posting saying, you know, we've got to push back on the alternative proteins and you see alternative protein people saying, oh, we've got to, you know, not have all the cows. And I guess where I get to is the systems change, you know, what can we do at scale and how do we actually get to a sustainable protein source, which gets to carbon neutral and some of the goals that MLA has set and, and is kind of moving towards. We think technology is a big solution there, but some Farmers will adopt technologies. Some farmers will be advanced in these practices and others won't or, or won't think that change makes sense for them. How, how do we get to that systems change? And does is regulation inevitable or is it innovation? What, what actually moves the needle? 
So I don't think regulation is inevitable, but it may be. (laughs) But it comes back to our opportunity. You know, we do have a window where we can actually be proactive and, and as you say, innovate our way through this next phase. And we've got to take a a, a broader industry view. So I, I don't think we're going to get agreement enterprise by enterprise because as you say we do have extreme views on on both sides and the extremes neither of them are right you know the extreme on the anti-meat side they're not right and the extreme on the meat side they're not right either so i have a very a very strong view that the bigger issue is feeding the world and in some ways the manufactured plant-based proteins are just another protein and yes they're a competitor to red meat and at a at a simple competition level, there's other things that are competitors to red meat as well. And and we should be conscious of that. We should make sure we position ourselves well, you know, focus on our positives, you know, the unique selling propositions that we have that that drive 96% of households consistently eating beef and 76 or 8% of them consistently eating lamb. So at a simple competition level, you know, there's ways we can deal with it. The stuff I have a problem with is when any opposition, doesn't matter whether it's a manufactured plant-based protein or another source of protein or whatever it might be, dishonestly or misleadingly denigrates our product without any attempt whatsoever to promote their own. And if we're actually about feeding the world, then let's work out how to feed the world. But if people want to, like I say, dishonestly or misleadingly denigrate our product just so they can try and create a bit more position for their own, which we've got heaps of examples of, and I've got no interest in having anything to do with them. And, and we absolutely should fight back and push back on what they're doing and saying because they're, you know, they're being dishonest and they're misrepresenting their position. It strikes me that the space is getting heated and one of the results of that is we're adding more adjectives to how we describe things, which is, is sometimes amusing. I mean, even what you just said is like manufactured plant-based proteins. Like now if we're going to add manufactured in front of it, but like ground beef is manufactured too. And like, so we're, we're in some ways making this more confusing when I tend to agree that data is pretty strong on, we need sustainable protein and there's a massive opportunity to start moving in that direction, no matter how that protein is sourced, because we need efficient feed conversion ratio we need sustainable diets, we need profitable farms, good use of land, et cetera, et cetera. Again, kind of coming back to the technology, I guess one of the areas that is talked about is carbon farming or carbon sequestration through livestock. And actually there was a recent announcement that you would have seen around some producers in Australia selling carbon credits in a private deal. Stu Austin was was on the podcast, as was uh, Matt at Cavan Station, and then the scientific communities really pushed back and said, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're not really there yet. We're not sure if this soil carbon is being sequestered. What's your view? Is this an area for solutions and, and technology? And does this kind of hold hope for Aussie farmers? I think it's absolutely a, a great opportunity and, to, and definitely one of the, one of the solutions. And you now it's interesting, isn't it? You comment about some of the scientific community responses and that'll be funnier later on you know, when we look back and see what some of those responses are. But because if what you just you think about that? it, well, it's so, so two things, right? So the amount of commentary that came out after the uh, announcement of the sale of those carbon credits to Microsoft by, by Wilmot, with absolutely no knowledge about what they'd done, was really quite amazing because what they've done is a really you know, robust and comprehensive process of measuring 
over time, you know, what their positioning was. And you look at the interventions that they've done and the things they've implemented in managing their livestock and land and a whole range of things that makes an incredible amount of sense where they ended up. But the immediate responses on, on the negative side related to, I haven't seen this or I don't understand this yet or what I've done hasn't gone down that path so that can't be right, which is pretty amazing really because when you actually go and sit there and dig into it, I think what they're demonstrating is a fantastic, uh, fantastic opportunity. When you look at the process Wilmot went through particularly, but others as well, they started from drought resilience. How do we be more drought resilient? And they got to a point where they say, well, far out. Look at what else is happening now that we're doing those things and the things that we're actually putting in place. Look at all these other unintended consequences, which are really positive impacts on our land. Let's also start focusing on those as well. So then they end up with this drought resilience, production and profitability and natural capital enhancement approach. And one of the things they measured was soil carbon and were able to demonstrate over a reasonably short period of time the ability to not just increase but increase and maintain you know, those increases in in soil carbon. So it's fantastic news. So forget the selling carbon credits. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that relates to soil carbon, which we know. So anybody who wants to jump in and say, well, we're not sure about whether you know this is possible. It's like, hold on, just go back to your basic soil science. Remember one of the things that contributes to increased water holding capacity and gives you greater utilisation of the rain that falls on your land is by increasing your soil carbon. How did you do that before? Oh, increasing organic matter. How did you increase organic matter before? Oh, increase ground cover. Hold on, let's just use a whole bunch of different words that you recognise from soil science and forget we're talking about soil carbon sequestration to measure the units and potentially sell them. And you've been teaching this stuff for decades. <laughs> what are some of the other approaches or technologies that excite you that might solve some of the challenges around perception or actual environmental impact of red meat? So I think there's some, there's some knock-ons from that. So when we look at the, the soil carbon piece, which, which is reasonably late to the game, because there's been a lot of other discussions in the last three or four years, and this has been one that's quite contentious. The soil carbon's been, been quite contentious. But increased productivity, so getting more productivity from the size of the herd or the flock sooner is certainly a big opportunity for us. So, you know, reducing age of turnoff, increasing kilos turnoff by time in the livestock sector, in the cattle sector, particularly seeing the increase in turnoff through feedlots, for example, we're reducing the age of turnoff and increasing the carcass weight, those sorts of things. And then on the supplement side, so obviously things like red asparagopsis, the seaweed supplement has been very well published. And those things are, are very real, you know, being able to reduce the, uh, the production of methane for animals that are being fed those supplements by you know, more than 90% with no detrimental impact on productivity, in some cases increase in productivity. And there's a lot riding on it. Like we've got challenges around market access for, you know, meat and other agricultural products that have certain credentials. We've got livelihoods at stake. We've got perceptions. I think as we, the technology advances, we're going to have more evidence. Like we'll have satellite imagery that shows how much biomass really was or wasn't there. And we'll know how much carbon was there. So, you know, and that, that has its own opportunities and challenges, but I guess ultimately it comes back in many ways to perceptions and to how people are feeling and talking about this. And, and there are some big naysayers. How, how's MLA thinking about kind of countering 
some of the negative views of the red meat industry? I think we've just got to keep chipping away at it, Sarah, but it's got to be incremental. We've got to be careful not to get too distracted by things that pop up in a short media cycle or otherwise. Some of the market access stuff is really interesting where the potential for environmental adjustments or environmental requirements for market access or entry into certain markets have have been kicked around. And we saw a case earlier this year where uh, there was a, a mention of those potential constraints in some of the European trade. And it was just a mention. So it was, it was mentioned in the European Parliament, but no detail, no structure, no implementation time plan or process. But the conversation very quickly progressed to, and this will be an issue with our free trade agreement, or this is going to restrict our access to the market. It's like, no, it won't. It will absolutely have what they're talking about will have no impact on that whatsoever. Should we be aware of this? Absolutely. But hold on. We're more advanced on this than anybody else in the world. So rather than jumping up and down and trying to make it harder for ourselves, why don't we just turn around and say, that's an interesting concept that you have. Look at what we're already doing. And an example I use often was when I was in Europe 10 years ago, I was involved in a discussion with the FAO around environmental requirements. And it was with a, a subset of the group there that was talking about potential environmental standards or, uh, no, sorry, welfare standards, welfare standards, and what would Australia's appetite be for these standards, which, of course, your radar goes up and thinks, my goodness, you know, the Europeans imposing things, oh, it's going to be a disaster. So, well, so rather than jumping to that conclusion, I said, well, what did you have in mind? They said, well, the things we were thinking about were were days outside and days off concrete. I thought, well, I think our industry will be very concerned about that, but you know, if that's the path you head down, we'll, we'll have to consider whether or not we can comply. You know? Now, if I had to have asked that second question and just jump straight into, there's no way we're going to agree to uh, European welfare standards being imposed on us, whereas what they're actually thinking we'd have 100% compliance with. So part of what we have to do is just <laughs> not overreact to these things as much as we can keep control of the path that we want to be on. And the MLA can be very good at controlling the media narrative. In fact, it does it every year with its Summer Lamb campaign, which coincides with Australia Day. Last year's advertisement won awards. It was beautifully shot, funny, and a very well-timed political commentary on the repeated state lockdowns happening in Australia due to COVID-19. Here's a snippet for you. It's set in a dystopian future 10 years from now where there are physical walls between the states. And it's the smell of lamb that makes the people start breaking the walls down. trying to become our own country again. Even the Tasmanians have arrived. Where are the rest of you? 
This is all of us. We did it. The United States of Australia. Nah, it's just Australia. It could be argued that the ad did its job. It was viewed over 10 million times on YouTube, played across all major media outlets in Australia, and lamb sales went up. But does it address any of those broader perception issues? So our targets for the ad are kind of everybody, you know. But last year, it was one of those just perfect environments where the team put an idea together, which they start now, you know. So that was an idea that developed over six months, and it was just one of those ones that just got better and better and better the closer we got. And even in the weeks leading up to the ad out, you know, the putting the ad out, the, you know, the premiers were making decisions and statements, which... It seemed like they're actually on our side. It was it was like the ad agency must have been prompting them, saying, "Be really helpful if you know you guys could be really unreasonable about these things." So that was obviously a fantastic campaign that worked well. And but the whole point behind that is is the messaging, you know, and it's the people's awareness of Lamb and the idea of uh, you know Lamb bringing bringing people together. And and it, I think it was incredibly effective this this last year. But as you say, there's those underlying requirements as well. So the messaging that then sits behind that, so the things at point of sale, the articles that go into the retail magazines, the social media, the the other you know, bringing to life of the the campaign, touches on all of those other things around you know, nutrition and around you know, the quality of the product and the versatility of it and and you know, how how much it's loved mm. uh, by Australians. But the the campaign and particularly this one last year, it certainly was was enduring. That's for sure. Yeah, I had lots of good conversations about, oh, does the rest of the world really think about how many states we have and how ridiculous that can be at some times? And yes, that, yes, <laughs> that is how some of the world sees us. It struck me though, because in Australia, I, when I left, I was walking to the ferry to go to the airport and there's a big lamb ad on the side. And then I landed in San Francisco and got off the plane and there's a big Beyond Burger, Beyond Meat burger sign. I said, oh, well, you know, we're in, we're in a different country now. And, you know, Silicon Valley, especially with where some of these things are from, one of the things on some of those ads here is is meat. And the conversation in the U.S. has moved, I would say, mostly beyond labeling. We're not sort of talking about that as much in the U.S. as I think that still is topical in Australia. What's your view on alternative protein products branding themselves as meat? I think that, that argument's obviously still raging here in Australia, and I think I, I've shifted. I was not that excited about it, but not all that bothered by it. And I think it's largely, and I've, I've shifted some time ago, that if we if we all were genuinely in this together about you know, feeding the world, I think it'd be a different discussion. The challenge of this, you know, unreasonable, untrue, self-interested denigration of our industry to try and promote another. And and that that's just not on. It doesn't matter what you're doing. I mean, that's just it's just unacceptable behavior. And if, if that's the case, then we don't want anybody who acts like that or anything that acts like that to be called the same thing as us. And we sure as heck don't want our consumers to mistake them as being the same. And and that and that's really what drives my view on it. And, and, and I'm not sure we can come back from that in Australia. Hmm. What, what do you say to the argument that consumers aren't really confused? You know, they're not conf- confused that peanut butter is butter. And so, you know, they're yeah. not confused about this either. So it's actually not true. There is some study, there is some work being done right now. And we've seen the preliminary results of it. 
which says that consumers are confused. So that'll be part of the, the Senate inquiry. And that's, again, it's a good example, I think, of, of putting objective information behind it. As Jason mentioned, there's currently a Senate inquiry in Australia into food labelling, which threatens to stop plant-based products using words like meat, steak, or sausage in naming their products. France is one country which has already taken this stance. As you can imagine, it's a very heated debate. On the one side, the meat industry is arguing that it's confusing for consumers and that plant-based products are unfairly using the meat industry's good reputation. Those on the plant-based side strongly disagree. They cite studies suggesting consumers know exactly what they're buying, aren't confused, and actively want to buy plant-based products. We've linked some of the research in the show notes so you can make up your own mind and tell us what we've missed. As for the future, the plant-based protein industry is expected to grow, and there are strong indications that plant-based diets will become more popular. There's also strong evidence that demand for protein of all kinds is growing, and that ultimately we need our protein to be produced sustainably. Australia remains one of the top three beef exporters in the world, and Jason is very optimistic about the sustainable future of red meat. And in the last two or three decades, they've invested in being a consistent producer of high-quality protein, and the investments that have gone into traceability, eating quality, quality assurance, free trade agreements has now positioned the industry incredibly well. And we've got very good prices now. And, and that's partly due to the big global macro drivers and supply here in Australia. But but a big part of it is also the investments that the industry has made across the board on being a producer of very consistent, high-quality, in-demand, fantastic protein. So so part of what we've got to do is stop being surprised by our success and because <laughs> this is the plan. You know, the plan is that you know, we end up with you know, this high-quality, high-value, in-demand protein and and we're kind of there so it's how we now build on that and keep all of our fantastic customers happy with the uh the prices they've got to pay for our product now (laughs) fantastic well jason thank you so much for making the time uh a pleasure as always to chat no worries thanks very much sarah thank you and that's it for another episode of ag tech so what thank you for listening and thank you to our listeners who suggested on our recent survey that we should have mla on the podcast We know this is a polarizing topic, so we've worked hard to provide lots of resources to the work mentioned in this podcast on our website, agtechsowhat.com. And if you're interested in the concept of misinformation in food and ag, please check out our Future Forces report, commissioned by AgriFutures Australia. The link is also on the website. I'm Sarah Nolette. Catch you next time.